Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. The Wise Tradition Speaker Series continues as today I interview the GMO fighters, Dr. Joseph Mercola and Polyface Farms' Joel Salatin, plus a special interview with Jeffrey Smith. Also, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. Three years after Congress passed the Food Safety Modernization Act, the FDA is now using its increased power that it was given to by the bill. There are two key provisions of the Food Safety Modernization Act. First is the on-farm produce standards rule, which creates requirements for every part of growing and harvesting fruits and vegetables. The second is the hazard analysis and risk-based preventive control, which considers even low-risk activities as safety hazards. These regulations propose huge problems for sustainable farmers and food producers as they clash with the methods used by traditional and sustainable agriculture businesses. The rules will result in added costs to the business, which will then lead to higher prices for the consumers and less availability of the goods. To take action, you can go to the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance website at farmandranchfreedom.org and learn how to write a letter to the FDA. Next, Argentina, a country once known for its grass-fed beef, has had significant changes after it made a deal with Monsanto in 1996. Now, all of its soy fields are GMOs, as well as the majority of its corn and cotton. And despite the initial decline in agrochemical use, it's now increased from 9 million gallons to 84 million gallons. And as a result, doctors are seeing increased health problems. What more do you need to hear to know that GMOs are not the solution? What's happening in Argentina is happening in the U.S. as well. In other GMO news, the Grocery Manufacturers Association released a list of the contributors to the No on I-522 ballot initiative in Washington State to label GMOs. Many of the largest food manufacturers are on the list. The top donors, who have all given over a million dollars individually, are Pepsi, Nestle, and Coca-Cola, all known for selling products filled with genetically modified ingredients. Not that I expect too many listeners to be supporters of the donors on the list, but these companies should reassure everyone why it's good to avoid them. Also, a new study from Harvard University found that the intake of processed meats is linked to lower sperm counts in males. 156 men volunteered and had sperm samples taken at the Massachusetts General Hospital Fertility Center and filled out a questionnaire of their food intake. As with all of these studies claiming health problems coming from meat, these researchers made no differentiation between meat from pastured animals and that from factory farming. That being said, organic processed meat is still processed meat. Even without adding in nitrates, nitrates will still form naturally from the salts the meats are cured with. 
Processed meat from healthy animals is okay once in a while, but fresh meat is always a better source of saturated fat. And finally, New York State's highest court has agreed to hear New York City's appeal of the ruling that blocked Mayor Michael Bloomberg's plan to ban supersized soft drinks. While I appreciate Mayor Bloomberg's efforts in trying to battle obesity, I don't think banning these sugar-filled beverages is the answer and hope that the state's highest court upholds the ruling to block the soda pop ban. And now for the main course. Every year, before the official start of the Wise Traditions Conference, there's a farm-to-consumer legal defense fundraiser dinner. The dinner is to raise money for the wonderful farm-to-consumer organization that defends the rights and broadens the freedoms of family farms, artisan food makers, and private buying clubs, as well as allowing consumers the right to purchase food directly from the farmers. For the fundraiser dinner in Atlanta this year, there's an extra bonus of a Lincoln-Douglas-style debate on whether the federal government should mandate labeling of genetically modified organisms on food products. Taking the side for government labeling is Dr. Joseph Mercola. Debating the position against GMO labeling is Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. First, I'm going to interview Dr. Mercola on why he favors governments to require labeling of GMOs. Dr. Mercola is a board-certified osteopath who's trained in both traditional and natural medicine. He's on the advisory board for numerous organizations, including the American Nutrition Association, the Weston A. Price Foundation, and the Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation. He also runs the site Mercola.com, which is one of the leading sites for information on natural health. Here to explain why he believes GMO labeling is good for consumers is Dr. Joseph Mercola. Dr. Mercola, welcome to the Appropriate Omnivore. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. You're one of the people that really puts the name the Appropriate Omnivore into effect because it was reading articles like yours that helped me learn a lot about going back to traditional diets and natural health. And I really appreciate what you're doing with the label GMO movement with last year there was Prop 37 in California and now I-522 in Washington. So why do you believe that uh, labeling GMOs is the way to go? Well, for a number of reasons. Uh, the, the primary one uh, is to give people the right to know what they're eating, to give them the freedom of the choose, because right now it's virtually impossible to, to identify if there's any GMO products in there. So it's just giving power back to the consumer. And there's a appropriate concerns for that, and we, we know that we cannot go the federal route because essentially Biotech and Monsanto specifically has cornered that arena. They have individuals like Michael Taylor, who is the deputy commissioner of the FDA and former vice president of Monsanto's policy division, uh, and it, it, so they have this massive revolving doors. Other examples would be a former attorney of Monsanto, who is now the Supreme Court Justice, Clarence Thomas. And Tom Villasac, who is no direct employee of Monsanto, but when he was governor of the uh, state of Iowa, he was a major biotech fanboy, and now he's head of the USDA. So, and there are, and the deputy commissioner of the EPA is also another former Monsanto vice president. So, they and there are dozens and dozens of other examples of this. They are very clever. They're a, mu a multi-billion billion dollar company, tens of billions of dollars in revenue. 
and they've been around for over 100 years. They're very uh, use very sophisticated techniques. They know what they're doing, and and they know how to lobby, and they know how to use the revolving door very effectively. So that basically, essentially, any attempt to pass useful federal legislation would never happen. Monsanto has has preempted that. So the way that the route that we're taking is to use direct democracy, which is still an option available to us, and what we used last year in California, and now uh, in two weeks or so in, in the state of Washington to essentially require companies to label their products if they contain GMO ingredients and giving the consumers the right to choose and the right to know if that's in their food. So a state-by-state thing is the way to get GMOs labeled? Uh, Well, direct democracy option does not exist in all states. Uh, It's it's the minority of states, primarily those west of the Mississippi. But it does not, even though technically it would only be approved in a few states, the practical reality is that once it is approved in a, in a few states, then the industry typically would not go to the trouble and effort of creating two lines or, or multiple SKUs within their lines of products that one have labeled the one is basically GMO free and the other is GMO ingredients. They just wouldn't do it. It's just far more efficient and uh, effective for them just to ch- switch over completely. So that's the hope. Once you reach a critical threshold, California would have been a heartbeat of the eighth largest economy in the world. But Washington and a few others, Vermont probably going to pass next year, uh, would be enough most likely to do what the California bill uh, would have done if it had passed. I think so, too, because I know that that's a lot of criticism that people get is it only does it in one state. But for one, I think these bills are a good start. And two, you're right that if they have to change their packaging for an area as large as California, or other places that it would make more sense economically to change it everywhere. Do you think that labeling GMOs is enough, or would you be in favor of fully banning GMOs? Uh, well, let me just extend that, that conversation on the last point, which is that it also, if there's victory in one state, it, 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 I mean, we are fighting essentially a trillion-dollar industry, and and we're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a variable David versus Goliath scenario. And if we have a victory like this, and, I, and, the vic- and most likely we will assuredly have a victory on November 5th in Washington. I mean, the, we're 13 points ahead in the poll now, and they are not gained. So once we have a victory like this, it inspires other people and people in other states to do similar actions. And so there will be this snowball effect from a victory. Now, with respect to banning of GMOs, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I believe that... Uh, I'm not in favor of GMOs. I would never use them for myself, family, or friends. But everyone should have the freedom to make that choice themselves. And I think essentially we'll achieve a similar result without banning them. And they never banned them in Europe. They All they did was require labeling, and essentially that's what they achieved is a banning. That's a good point to know because one thing that concerns me about GMOs is how they can cross-pollinate into non-GMO farms, but you make a good point that in Europe they haven't needed to do it, and by simply labeling, I've seen that really a lot of these people in Europe, they don't want to buy the GMOs anymore because they see what it has on the labels. Yeah, it's an economic argument. The, the primary reasons why GMOs are initiated, it is not for the reasons that biotech tells you in any way, shape, or form. It's not to provide superior human nutrition or proper resistance or resistance to diseases or pests. 
it's purely to increase the economic productivity and allow the use of more sales of their herbicides, primarily glyphosate, or Roundup. And they're using 880 uh, million, 880,000, almost a billion pounds of glyphosate every year, this toxic poison. And these, the, the sad reality of it is it's not only destroying plant and human health, but it, it's destroying the environment. I mean, we have 67 million acres right now of super reefs, despite Biotech's promise that we were not going to have resistance to this. And there's 67 million acres requiring the use of even more glyphosate and, and other potent herbicides like 2,4-D and dioxin. So it's, it's, a, it's a giant mess. They've lied to us from the beginning. They continue to lie just for, the, for their bottom line profits, and it's just disgusting. Do you think there's some things that we learned after running Prop 37 that you see other states doing different now, such as Washington? Oh, absolutely. There was some refinement in the actual language of the bill. You know, you learn by your process, and we certainly did in that. And we found what the objections were, and we corrected them, and we fine-tuned it. So uh, there's been not a lot of major shifts, but a few minor ones that made a big difference. So that's one of the reasons why I think it will pass this time. Interestingly, though, you know, and I didn't know this until California. When you have a political ad, it is totally legal to lie through your teeth. It doesn't have to be supported by any factual evidence. And that's what they're doing. They're just lying. And they know they can do it because it's legal. And I know one of the things with the California bill was that there were certain things that couldn't be put in it, such as products that had second-generation GMOs, such as meat where the animals were fed GMOs. In other states, is that not an issue? And would they be able to label things such as corn-fed beef? Yeah, I'm not specific. I'm not on the steering committee. I, there's members of my executive team who are and help direct that, but I'm not specific. I'm not aware of the specific intimate details of what this, this goes on the show, but I know it was modified. What are your thoughts on Whole Foods vowing to label GMOs by 2018? Do you think it needs to take them this long to do it? Uh, yes, because that is for their uh, complete store, and the biggest problem here is the supply chain. And you cannot certify meat to be GMO-free until you've got – it's a very long, complex process, and they're committed to doing it. Because most of – a lot of their vegetables, of course, that's easy to do, and, and grains. But, but for the, the animal product, it's a, it's a semi-nightmare, and that's part of the reason. It's just not really a delay tactic or strategy, at least that's my perception. It's just – and I talked to, to one of their vice presidents about this. It's, uh, it's just a logistical challenge in the supply chain. I can believe that, and I know that that's been a criticism of these GMO bills is being able to change them over in a short period of time or not having the money to. So that Whole Foods is saying that it will take some time. I'm really just glad that it will happen in the end, and I want to take their word that they're at least going to get it right by having it labeled by then. Oh, yeah, they will. They're, they're committed to it. They're, they're a company with integrity. So it's good, it's good to see them in that direction, and that was partly catalyzed by the efforts that we put in California. As a physician, what do you think is the most alarming thing about GMOs? Well, there's so many of them. It's, uh, there's, there's two, it's broadly, you can categorize it into two different areas, acute and chronic. The chronic issue is it could threaten the very sustenance of food and agriculture for the human race and threaten the food supply for the future generations. So that's the biggest threat. Uh, I don't think it's there yet, but it has the potential to. Certainly has the potential to. Right now, there it's it's a threat somewhat similar to, to smoking, and we are probably in the same stage. We're in the 50s or 60s, and that 
it's a, it's a chronic toxic po uh, poison exposure, and the, it takes a while for the poison to uh, manifest its side effects. You know, if, if you have a GMO food loaded with glyphosate, like soy or corn, you are not going to really probably most likely have any serious. Some people will, but most people have any serious side effects that day or next week or next month or next year, it takes a long time for this stuff to build up. And part of the reason it does that is because of the, uh, it's a mineral chelator, metal chelator, and it primarily chelates out of zinc and manganese, but other metals, minerals too. So that you get these chronic mineral deficiencies that can cause uh, long-term challenges. If they could all, acutely can also result in infertility, spontaneous abortions, and you see this quite a bit in, in many of these crops, uh, animal crops. Uh, so, and in many of the animal studies, it, it's, which obviously have uh, much more rapid turnover than humans. So their generations are in order of weeks, months, or years, where you know, humans are in 10 decades. So uh, we have some uh, predictive exposure as to you know, what's going to happen if we continue to expose ourselves to this type of pernicious toxin. And is some of this still new as far as really learning the long-term effects of what will happen with humans, with GMOs? Yeah, we we don't know. We can project forward from the animal studies, but uh, it, it's it's not good. It's an herbicide. It is toxic to life. It was patented. Monsanto has a patent that exists today and is valid and using this as an antibiotic. And we know the side effects of antibiotics. So it's, it's in many ways, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, I can see that. Certainly, there are some similarities between GMOs and antibiotics. For people that have had problems with GMOs and gotten sick, what is the best way to recovery? Uh, well, just to, to either optimize your diet, and on my website, I've got a diet plan that's about 100 pages, and it's free. Just it's on the homepage at Mercola.com, and so just move gradually and divide it into beginner, intermediate, and advanced. So depending on where you're at, you know, you can jump in, because uh, most people can't make dietary shifts immediately. They have to do it slowly. So uh, that's improve your diet and eliminate all GMOs and only eat organic. And uh, if you've been exposed to a lot of soy and corn that's loaded with GMOs, uh, toxins like glyphosate, then uh, you want to take zinc and manganese supplements because that'll help uh, uh, add back the minerals that were chelated out. And you can also optimize your gut flora with uh, fermented vegetables or high uh, potency of uh, probiotics. I'm a big advocate of fermented vegetables and probiotics for a lot of reasons, and this is obviously another reason. About how long does it take people to recover from this, or is it different for each person? No, it's totally different. That's in the health of the person. There's no way to answer that question. Right. Accurately. And overall, do you see with these initiatives that we're passing and just with people learning more about GMOs that we are heading in the right direction with getting GMOs labeled and people knowing to avoid these foods oh, yeah. in the first place? Oh, yeah, there's no question. There's still the overwhelming majority of the country has no clue what a GMO is. Uh, but we are reaching a tipping point, a critical threshold, that uh, enough people know about this and are concerned about this and are voting with their pocketbooks that we're making a difference. And I, I'm fairly confident, probably at the 90% confidence level, that we will be victorious in Washington and it should be the beginning of the end. And, and in fact, there was an, an article by a former anti-GMO person who turned to a GMO skeptic or a GMO advocate who essentially announced is, is that he was in favor of GMO labeling. It just was announced yesterday or the day before. And which uh, oh. is, is interesting because there, it, we believe that the sign that they're, they've capitulated, they surrendered. 
and the fact they're going to be pushing for federal legislation to supersede the state. But, you know, as soon as they know that they've lost, despite putting, you know, donating probably five, three, four, five hundred percent more dollars than, than our side has, uh, they've lost. Uh, so uh, it's, it's exciting times. It really is. Yeah, so that's pretty assuring that someone's switched over to the other side, and it shows that the movement is working. We're just about out of time, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can find your website to learn more about the dangers of GMOs, how to protect yourself against it, and all other issues related with natural health. Yes, yeah, simplemercola.com, my last name, M-E-R-C-O-L-A. Uh, we've got a free newsletter, and we go through hundreds of articles every day to find the best and the latest in current health and report on these things. We're also taking a pretty aggressive political activist position in many of these important issues like GMO labeling and and informed consent about vaccines so that people are educated about that and removing fluoride from the water supply and, and mercury from dentistry. So we're, we're active in, in all these areas and excited about teaching people how to use simple, simple approaches to keep themselves healthy. And I'm excited about reading more of what you have to say in future articles. Dr. Mercola, pleasure to have you here. For the other side of the bait is Beyond Organic Farmer Joel Salatin. Joel is a third-generation alternative farmer who runs Polyface Farms, which is looked at as the premier model of sustainable farming to replenish our grasslands. Some of the principles on his farm include salad bar beef, the Eggmobile for pastured eggs, piggerator pork, pastured turkeys, forage-based rabbits, and also a sustainable forestry and lumber. Here to discuss why he believes a government mandate on GMO labeling is not the answer, and what he sees as the better solutions is Joel Salatin. Joel, welcome to The Appropriate Omnivore. It's a pleasure to have you here because you're one of the people that really made the name The Appropriate Omnivore. Your farm, Polyface Farms, is one of the first Beyond Organic farms that I've read about, which got me interested in all of this that I'm doing. Good. Well, thank you. Everything that you do from the level of that the animals are all free-range and they're fed healthy and make healthy meats, even the idea of your concept of local, that you wouldn't allow anyone to get it from FedEx. If they want your meat, they have to go to the farm and get it. Right. Well, we do we do deliver up to four hours away, but uh, but not beyond that. And that's as far as we've picked because that allows us to, that allows a person to, you know, to come and go in, in one day. So that's, that's our level of transparency. I'm not saying that that's, uh, it's sinful to do anything else. It's just that, that that's what we picked as a, Oh, kind of a line in the sand for us. Oh, yeah, and there are some great farms that may extend it a little farther. So there isn't kind of one right or wrong answer, but I think it's very respectable the way that you handle it. Well, thank you. Yeah, It does It does actually free us up a lot because now when somebody calls us from, from beyond that, instead of us sitting here getting ulcers and trying to figure out how do we get it to them, uh, we can just tell them, no, go find your, you know, your local farmer there and and we're we're very we're liberated from the <laughs> from the tension of trying to figure out how to make it happen it, it actually is quite freeing and in addition to being really a revolutionary in the world of the pasture based beyond organic farms another thing that you've been very outspoken on recently is the issue of GMOs so what do you think is the best way to get people to avoid GMOs well the best way is just don't eat them <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, uh, freedom of choice. The, the, I mean, the best way is just is just don't eat them. I mean, if if nobody 
if nobody would buy GMOs, uh, if everybody bought GMOs like we did, they wouldn't exist. So uh, there's there's no there's no compelling there's no inherent reason uh, why GMOs exist. So um, yeah, you just you, you don't you don't fool with that. Uh, so that, that that's that's one that's one thing. But the second uh, the second answer I think is is uh, maybe something people can stick their teeth into, and that is that um, for whatever reason, and I don't certainly don't know all the machinations behind uh, you know closed doors, but for some reason the GMO uh, perpetrators have immunized themselves themselves from trespass laws and uh you know if, if i have a bull and that bull goes through the our boundary fence and comes over into your yard and tramples up your uh rose bushes your flower garden you can call the district attorney and the sheriff and uh, and make sure that i either you know pay a fine or compensate you or whatever that i'm held you know i'm held liable and responsible for my my bull, in this case, my you know my being, uh, the being that I own, uh, coming across the fence and doing something on your property that you didn't want to have happen. In other words, it's the old proverbial, you know, my my fist didn't stop at your nose; it went on past the end of your nose, if you will, once that crossed the fence line. But with GMOs, for some reason, uh, my bull can come onto your property and trump your flower garden, and not only can you not hold me liable for it, but you have to pay me for the privilege of my bull tramping your flower garden. And uh, that, to me, is just, a, is just an obscene uh, view of personhood, of personal space, and of everything the Magna Carta and jurisprudence and common law established, you know, centuries ago for a person's, you know, should be able to, you know, be secure, our Constitution says, in his, in his person and his effects. And that security is that somebody else does not violate that. And, uh, and this, this, uh, this obscene uh, violation is not being held accountable by the powers that be, and it's highly unfortunate. The cross-contamination of GMOs, I think that is one of the biggest problems of them is farmers that don't want to grow GMOs. There's a problem of they can't quite avoid it from them being blown over. As a farmer, what do you think is the best way to avoid cross-contamination? Oh, well, uh, I, I actually don't know. I mean, um, I mean, you can certainly put, you know, buffer strips. You can plant, you know, shelter belt tree things. You, uh, but at the end, I mean, in the final analysis, uh, this stuff, the, the, these beings, these life forms, these patented owned life forms, I'm going to call them uh, bulls for the sake of this discussion, uh, just because I think that's a lot more uh, appropriate than, than pollen, which seems to be, uh, less biological for some reason to most people. Um, these uh, these things are uh, are by nature promiscuous. They're by nature venturesome, and and uh, so 
the, the, the problem that we've had right now, this is why the, you know, the organic farmers have sued uh, and they lost in New York, you know, trying to get some sort of uh, recognition that when you get this drift and your fields are now uh, tainted and you have beings that you don't want, uh, this is a not only a, a, a complete um, abrogation of property rights, it's also, it also has great personal financial liability if now I can't sell my crop as a, you know, as a GMO-free crop or if I can't sell my cow as a GMO-free cow or my milk or whatever uh, because the marketplace is you know, many many people are seeking out GMO free material, and uh, and and you know right now, um, depending on who you talk to, but there are many experts now who say, right now in the U.S. there is not such a thing as a bin full of corn or soybeans or you know uh, that that doesn't have some part per million of GMOs in it due to drift. When it comes to the federal government mandating GMO labeling, do you see that as actually making the matters worse for GMOs? Well, I am not a proponent of GMO labeling because I don't think the government solves very many things. Uh, I'm pretty much opposed to all labeling. Um, and the reason is because labeling has actually created far more confusion than, um, than precision the clever speak language and the bureaucracy surrounding what's natural and what's not natural, uh, how big print size has to be, what's on a label, um, what you can't put on a label, what you can put on a label, uh, the, the, uh, the confusion and the subjectivity of application toward uh, research uh, that you can claim, you know, uh, what, what is grass-finished, what's not, what's free-range, what's not, what's organic, what's not. Uh, and, and every time the government has gotten involved in labeling, I mean, a perfect example is the organic certification program, which is basically a labeling law. Um, every time that happens, it immediately becomes completely hijacked and compromised by the, you know, by the biggest players in the industry. And so it becomes uh, prostituted and adulterated by, you know, by those who want to, um, you know, confuse and obfuscate the, level, the label. And so I pretty much come to the conclusion that, um, that, that, that labels are actually hurtful. I mean, government, not, not, not labels are not hurtful, but government manipulation of labels is hurtful to clear speak and to precise language uh, simply because you know the, the words get changed. I mean, I mean, right now, for example, the USDA uh, uh, definition of free range for poultry means that the chicken is free to move all of her body parts. Well, do you think when you say the word free range chicken, do you, is is that what you think? Oh, this chicken is free to move her wings and 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 move her legs out as far as she wants to. Is that what you think? Oh, not at all. Of, of course not. Of course not. So, so when you, when the government gets involved with something, it 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 uh, inherently um, muddies the waters, 
and creates a language that wasn't that wasn't uh, expected in the first place. I mean, you can go back to well, I didn't inhale. You can you know go back to you know. <laughs> we can take this conversation many places, but you see what I'm saying. Uh, this this whole language, you know, what is reasonable and what is uh, this and that. And and the fact is that if we have a GMO labeling law, um, it will bring all the power and manipulation and obfuscation of the bureaucracy down, which is essentially a lackey of Monsanto. It'll bring all that down on the you know on the food movement and on farmers. And so, for example, a farmer like me that's currently doing the best I can to uh, you know to buy all GMO-free grains, for example, for our chickens. Um, you know, if a bureaucrat came out here, did the litmus test, and found, you know, half a part per billion in that corn thing, then I would have to put on, you know, a GMO label. And, um, and that's simply, you know, that, that's simply, uh, again, it, it, it destroys the whole precision of the language. So in other words, we don't need more government to handle the GMO problem. And in fact, I know that uh, something that some have proposed is actually involving less government, which is eliminating GMO subsidies. Are you for that? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm for eliminating all subsidies. In fact, I'm for eliminating the entire USDA. Uh, that would suit me just fine. I mean, no, no agency has ever been so successful at annihilating its entrepreneurial constituency. So, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm for you know Einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it, and I don't think anybody uh, anybody is uh, thinks that we got to where we are um, because of a free market or because of a lack of government intervention. We got where we are because of government funded research, land grant universities that have become the the you know the lackeys of the uh, you know of the industrial food community, and and lend credibility and credence to the agenda that the you know the big um, the the status quo industrial food system puts out, and so uh, so with this collusion and this what I call this fraternity that this this paradigm fraternity, uh, it stacks the deck, it it subsidizes, it concessionizes. And it prejudices the entire marketplace and even the understanding of people to be able to make proper judgments. If the government were completely out of it, if the land-grant university were completely out of it, then what you would have is, um, is one side making their claims, the other side making their claims, and it would be one, one seller against the other seller. And that would create an educated buyer. What we have right now is a, a country in which 80% of Americans have been conditioned to believe that the government is responsible for their food, and so whenever there is, a, there is official speak from the government, that's what people believe. End, end of, um, of truth-seeking journey. You know, The government has spoken. That's good enough for me. Now let's go look at People magazine and see what the Kardashians are doing. And, and, and I suggest that if the end result is an educated person, then what we have to do is recreate 
the 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 onus of responsibility for finding information, um, the onus of decision making, if you will, on the individual rather than rather than uh, uh, the individual contracting that out to a nameless, faceless bureaucracy that is actually a lackey of the very people that they're supposed to regulate. And then, and then all the you know all the people just uh, duplicitously follow the uh, official government line, and 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 it and it just it just gets worse instead of better. Well, Joel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your opinions about the fight against GMOs. Before we go, tell the listeners where they can find the website for Polyface Farms. Uh, you can just Google Polyface Farms. Uh, Polyface Farms. That's all you need, and it'll pop right up, and that'll that'll give you our website. Well, thank you so much. It's been really a treat to have you here. There was a little preview of the GMO labeling debate that's happening next month at the Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta. To get your tickets for the debate of the century, or for those of you that can't attend, you can find out how to listen to it live. That all can be found at farmtoconsumer.org. Coming up, I'm going to continue with the GMO fighters as I interview GMO expert and speaker Jeffrey Smith. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflower.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And I'm back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Today's episode is all about showcasing the GMO fighters. My final guest for today is Jeffrey Smith. Jeffrey is an author and GMO expert. He founded the Institute for Responsible Technology, which educates public policymakers about genetically modified food and crops. He also wrote, directed, and starred in the excellent documentary Genetic Roulette, and is currently going around the country with his lecture tour, letting everyone know why we don't want GMOs. Jeffrey, it's great to have you here on the program. Thank you. We're doing a whole show on what I call the GMO fighters, and I think, as you're known as the world's foremost expert on genetically modified foods, that we've got to include you in this episode. Well, you, you know, I, I don't consider myself 
the foremost expert because there's a lot of scientists that I rely on for details, but I, I might be the, the, the leading spokesperson on the health dangers because I talk a lot. And we're glad to have you talking here about them. So one of the big things with GMOs and labeling is the upcoming initiative in Washington State, which is I-522. If this gets passed, how will this initiative affect the rest of the country? Well, it has to be passed and implemented. So we're going to be facing a couple of potential barriers. Um, we may face a lawsuit by Monsanto and friends, um, and that may delay implementation or not. Uh, we may face um, federal government intervention where the FDA or Congress may come in and say uh, states can't do that, and we want to preempt them and make it a federal uh, consideration only. But if we assume that it gets past those hurdles and we have strategies to deal with those, um, then it will affect the entire United States in a big way because you're not going to see major national companies create two different brand uh, packaging. They're not going to have one package for Washington State and one package for the rest of the country. In fact, I think a lot of these companies would rather remove GMOs than admit that they're using them. So if they're going to take the time to eliminate GMOs for, say, Washington State distribution, then they're going to likely eliminate GMOs for the entire country. Some may not do a, a national change, some may do regional, but I think for most, we're going to see the tipping point achieved very quickly. And by the way, that tipping point of consumer rejection is already underway. We've tipped the natural food industry. The natural food industry is scrambling to become non-GMO project verified. And we hope to get the tipping point finalized or at least underway in the conventional food industry very soon, uh, which is why GMOs were kicked out of Europe because people became aware of the dangers and they said they didn't want to use them. So the same companies that sell us GMOs and are trying to fight labeling in Washington have long ago removed GMOs in Europe. And this is, as far as I know, the second major state ballot initiative to involve labeling of GMOs. Last year in California, there was Prop 37, which unfortunately did not pass. Are there some things that we learned last year from California's initiative that they're doing differently in the state of Washington? Yes. Um, they, uh, first of all, we're aware of the lies that they're coming out with. And I think some of the ads and materials of Washington are, are, are better prepared to highlight the fact that the citizens are being lied to many, many times a day on television and in mailings on radio, uh, chiefly that the labeling, the biggest lie is that labeling is going to increase costs by $450 per family, which is a total lie. It will have no increase in costs as it hasn't in the 64 other countries that either ban GMOs or label them, and most of them label, require labeling. Uh, there's a lie that there's exemptions that don't make sense, and of course the exemptions make complete sense. The other side is using complete lies and distortion about what the actual uh, ballot initiative ballot would would invoke. In other words, they're completely misrepresenting the truth. Uh, and they also are saying that it'll hurt farmers and hurt small businesses. All that's a lie. So I think that the campaign was more equipped for that. Now, my preference is to have messaging that not only wins at the ballot box, but wins at the cash register to change people's behavior by highlighting the health risks of GMOs at the same time. I don't think either campaign in, in California or Washington state has properly addressed that issue. And I think that's far more impactful, more emotional, 
and will ultimately win in the long run for us getting rid of GMOs. You're right that they haven't really tackled the health issue with the labeling in either of the states. Do you think in any way that that's a hard thing to explain and perhaps maybe it's not something that can be explained to the average person? I think it's two things. I don't think it's hard to explain since that's what I do professionally for 17 years and we can convince people very, very quickly to stop eating GMOs. And we've got thousands and thousands of physicians now prescribing non-GMO diets. The movie Genetic Roulette, The Gamble of Our Lives, has people changing their diet before they see the end of the movie, uh, geneticroulettemovie.com. I mean, we, we know how to do this. Um, what, we, what people don't realize is that if you only have 30 seconds, uh, then it's harder to get behavior change messaging to work. You need a, you need a little more time. Uh, but if, that, if you handle an integrated campaign of messaging like that, so people get it over time from the messages, from longer form mailings, et cetera, from social media, then they're going to be antidoted to the disinformation campaign by the biotech industry. They're going to resent every time they see an ad by Monsanto and friends lying to them they're going to know the truth, and it's going to get them fired up. So when you do polling-based messaging, the polls will distort, I think, the impact of a, of a health danger campaign by maybe making other simple you know, two-sentence questions more popular in the first pass. So if someone says, you know, are you in favor of knowing what's in your food, you'll get everyone to say yes. If you start introducing the health dangers in that kind of single-sentence format, you're not necessarily going to get the same kind of results. So I think that that's been dictating the the uh, strategy of some of these uh, uh, campaigners. And I think it's a shame because I know from my own experience that if you have an integrated campaign that unfolds the link between GMOs and cancer and diabetes and autism and gastrointestinal disorders and allergies and asthma and these things that we know from a biochemical standpoint from some animal feeding studies, from human testimonials, from doctor testimonials, if these come out in sufficient number and appropriateness, then you, then the food companies realize, my goodness, there's a multi-million dollar campaign not only designed to win labeling, but to steal our customers and get them to eat non-GMO. That will drive the tipping point very, very quickly. After I-522, what do you see as the next step in fighting GMOs? Well, I think that the tipping point of consumer rejection is still the primary thing. I think I-522 is very important. We've contributed money. I've, I've traveled in Washington. Uh, we're still figuring out ways to support it at this, at this final hours. But, you know, there's so many, there's so many precedents set for why uh, the tipping point is actually going to drive it as a stable solution. Um, if it passes and if it's implemented quickly – then I think that'll drive the tipping point, as I mentioned. If it's blocked somehow, I think we simply need to convey information about the health dangers. Now, we have a window that's about to open up, which I think is the most important window for anti-GMO activism in the history of the United States. That's when a mainstream food product declares itself non-GMO project verified on the shelves of Walmart and Safeway, but not sold at Whole Foods or the natural food industry. Now, that moment that it declares itself non-GMO project verified, the clock starts ticking. And if we can move the needle on market share, 
if we can increase the sales of the non-GMO product and reduce the market share of the brand leader that's still using GMOs, every other food company manager looks at that and realizes, I don't want to be second to announce GMO-free or non-GMO in my product category. And we will see an avalanche of food companies scrambling to secure non-GMO supplies. So I think that can happen at any time. We have indications that some companies are ready to announce at any time. And so for that, we have to appeal not to the health conscious shopper that, that shops at Whole Foods, etc., but to the Walmart shopper and the Safeway shopper. So we have a massive educational campaign that's designed to reach moms, to pet owners, to sick people, to healthcare professionals, and to religious people whose religions believe that GMOs really means God move over. I think another tipping point could simply be these states getting these initiatives on the ballot and more people in effect become aware of what GMOs are and go for buying these non-GMO products, the ones that are labeled or doing the research. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's not another tipping point. That's the tipping point. I mean, that's the way that actually is happening. You know, the, one of the um, upshots of Prop 37 is that it did increase awareness around the country. It increased the level of outrage for those that realized what was going on. And that is driving greater awareness and also choices for non-GMO labeled products. So that's when we talk about the tipping point. That's one of the mechanisms. So I see the mechanisms that support a tipping point are the voluntary labeled products, are the political campaigns for uh, ballot initiatives or bills, uh, and for just the, the movie Genetic Roulette, the books we've created, the 108 speeches I gave last year, the 165 media interviews, etc. And another thing that we got from Prop 37 was there was the March Against Monsanto. Do you think if there was not a Prop 37 that we would have had this March Against Monsanto that we held worldwide? I do think we would have a March Against Monsanto at this point. I don't think Prop 37 has had as significant an impact overseas as what Monsanto does day in and day out, and that's anger people. I mean, they have been voted every year in popular votes as the most evil company on the planet with stiff competition. So uh, they have actually, they're boiling themselves in hot water. So uh, it's a rather, it's a rather significant uh, thing that when a single Facebook post and call to call to arms results in more than 2 million people in 52 countries coming out on the streets. So that demonstrates that, you know, it's really a worldwide uh, movement. It's a worldwide outrage. And Monsanto is clearly uh, in the crosshairs of every country right now. And they want to, they want to affect every country. They want to replace nature. They've actually said that they want to genetically engineer 100% of all commercial seeds in the world and patent them. In other words, to irreversibly eliminate the products of the billions of years of evolution. And we've heard somewhat of the different seeds that they genetically engineer. Probably the one that most people are familiar with is corn. And I think a lot of people also know about soy and canola. What are some of the foods that people are least aware of that contain GMOs? Well, uh, there's papaya. If the papaya is grown in Hawaii or China, there's a very good chance it's GMO. There's zucchini and yellow squash. Uh, so those are the ones that uh, are less known. Alfalfa is now GMO, not all of it, but a lot of it, and that's used as hay for animal feed. You also have the bovine growth hormone that's injected into cows to increase milk supply. That's genetically engineered, and it can affect the safety of the milk. 
Um, and then you have aspartame, which is, comes from genetically modified bacteria. I think aspartame would be dangerous even if it weren't from GMOs because it breaks down into three toxins and has a lot of history of causing problems. You just have to Google that and you'll be shocked at aspartame. Uh, and there's cottonseed oil. Most people don't relate, realize that cotton is a food product and cottonseed oil is genetically engineered in the United States and Canada. Another food that I've heard considered to be GMO is the seedless watermelon. Would you label that as a genetically modified food? Absolutely not. It is from crossbreeding, selective breeding. It is not from genetic engineering. Now, some people will use the word genetic modification loosely and include anything that changes the gene in any way, including sexual reproduction. I think that's a conscious effort to confuse people. So we refer to genetic engineering and genetic modification the same way, transferring genes uh, artificially into species. And the whole process of genetic engineering causes massive collateral damage, which can increase allergens, toxins, carcinogens, etc. Also, I've heard something about some baker's yeast being genetically modified. Is that one that is a GMO or is that more of just a crossbreeding? Uh, there can be yeast. Uh, there can be uh, enzymes, food additives, uh, enzymes used to make uh, hard cheese, etc. So we have a lot of different um, uh, smaller ingredients that aren't even labeled on the products that are genetically engineered. Um, and uh, I don't even go into them much because it, people can freak out and feel overwhelmed and realize I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of it. So I won't even try. Uh, but we do have that information uh, listed on our site. Responsibletechnology.org is our website. Uh, we have a free newsletter. We have a GMO Summit coming up October 25th, 6th, and 7th. Um, GMOsummit.org with 20 different experts and speakers, many of you you've heard of. And uh, we also have a shopping guide, nongmoshoppingguide.com, and the iPhone application, Shop No GMO. Well, that's great. We're just about out of time. Is there any last words you want to give the listeners as far as advice on avoiding GMOs and keeping up in the fight for a GMO-free world? I think we have done a great thing up to now in, in uh, starting the tipping point going. We have uh, the tipping point has been achieved, I think, in the natural food industry. Uh, but this is an absolutely critical time, absolutely critical. If a product becomes non-GMO project verified in the aisles of Safeway, etc., and is not increasing sales, then the food industry can pretend that this is a firewalled issue and not affecting anyone outside the natural food industry space. And so that can be the excuse for letting yet another season go by where they don't plant a lot more non-GMO acreage. So this is the time that's more important than any time in history for people to talk about GMOs to their friends. And so we have a lot of tools on our site. We have a speaker training program, we have an activist program with over 10,000 activists and 117 groups. We have all sorts of materials that people can share. So that's all available at responsibletechnology.org. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to have you here. Lots of great information regarding the problems with genetically modified foods and several different solutions on what we can do to avoid GMOs. I could easily talk for another hour, even longer, about this topic, but every main course must come to an end. I again thank Dr. Joseph Mercola, Joel Salton, and Jeffrey Smith for taking time to come on the program and discuss this important issue. But now, we're going to have to close the show. 
As every episode winds down, I bring you the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Thursday, October 24th, the Urban Homestead in Pasadena is holding a potluck and screening of the documentary Hungry for Change. Hungry for Change is by the filmmakers of Food Matters and talks about the problems with what's labeled as diet food and how those foods make you crave more. Following the screening will be a Q&A with Dr. Kevin Naramore of the Naramore Institute. To attend the event, go to urbanhomestead.org. Also, this Saturday, October 26th, at the historic Gardner House in Claremont, the Institute of Domestic Technology is holding its olive crafting class. You'll have the opportunity to learn how to make olive oil, cured olives, tapenade, and marinated olives. To register for the class, go to instituteofdomestictechnology.com. And finally, next Tuesday, October 29th, the Weston A. Price Pasadena Chapter holds its monthly potluck meeting. This month, Chapter co-leader Karen Vulcanig-Behegan and Dr. Roseanne Volmer talk about the benefits of organ meats. The event will be held at the Nature Friends Clubhouse in Sierra Madre. For more information on the event, go to westonaprecepasadena.blogspot.com. And the Weston A. Price Pasadena website also has a community calendar with a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles areas. That's all for this week. My guest next week is Sandeep Agarwal, the founder of Pure Indian Foods and curator of the traveling exhibition Butterworld, which can be seen at the Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta in November. For more information on my guests, as well as to listen to past podcasts, visit my page at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well,